Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Sex crimes, especially those committed against children, are viewed as amongst the most heinous criminal acts there are. Sexual predators that victimize children are thought to be bad candidates for rehabilitation and have potential to target other children once they've been released from prison. That's part of the reason sexual offenders must register with the state, sometimes for the rest of their lives. The offender's photograph and current address is posted on a website known as Megan's List or the Megan's Law Registry. But do the list work to reduce sex crimes? The Carlisle Sentinel has conducted an investigative series of stories on the issue the past few days. The Sentinel reporter, Joshua Vaughn, joins us today. Josh, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Let me tell our listeners at home that if you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, I'll start with the, the, the main question and the broad question, and that is, do Megan Law, Megan's Law registries work? I, I think it depends on what, what you mean by work. I According to Kristen Hauser from uh, PCAR, they, they seem to work to get rid of the anonymity of the sex offender. But if you're talking about working in reducing sexual crimes, the evidence doesn't seem to be there for that. Uh, they tend to be built on the concept that sexual offenders uh, are highly likely to recidivate, are highly likely to commit more sexual offenses. And it seems like study after study after study that that's done uh, finds that that's, that's not actually the case. PCAR. Uh, Pennsylvania Coalition yes. Against Rape. Uh, Kristen Hauser has been a guest in our program many times. But that goes against the generally accepted thinking. Sure. I mean, uh, and we're going to talk about the evidence w- that uh, you sure. found when these laws were enacted. But uh, society overall believes that, uh, that if someone uh, is attracted to children sexually, that and I hate to put it this way, but I've actually heard experts say it. Sure. That they can't be cured. That they always are going to be attracted to children, and for that reason, they have to be singled out. Sure, and and, and the polls of the general population put it uh, that that most people believe seventy five to eighty percent of sexual offenders will commit a new crime. That That's the perceived recidivism rate. Uh, the actual is closer to, for all sexual offenders, closer to like 3%, 10%. Uh, we didn't particularly look into the psychology of, of sexual offenders. We looked at... Uh, committing new offenses. So it very well may be that, that it is it could be more of an in, ingrained thing, but committing new offenses does not seem to happen after being released, or at least not to the scale that that we perceive. And I don't know whether you can answer this or not, but how does that happen when the public, and I I, I would agree 100% that uh, most people, three quarters of the people, if you ask them on the street, uh, are sex offenders more likely to offend once they're released from prison? And, you know, those people would say, yes, they are. But it goes from 75 to 80% to reality what was it again? Uh, three to ten, uh, twelve being. I mean, there are different studies. So there, there was uh, the the Department of Justice on their website. Three uh, percent after one year commit a new offense, and this is all offenders. This is your high level rapist who. Uh, attempting to lure a child into if you've been arrested for one of these violations 3% after uh, one year get arrested for or uh, arrested for another uh, sexual crime 10% after 5 years there was another study of uh, 9000 uh, released offenders in 1994 uh, and 12% had committed uh, new offenses within uh, 3 years so it, it is low and, and that that's 
that's taking the whole group as a whole. So you have high-risk offenders who are going to be uh, more likely. So uh, there was a study that high-risk offenders, up to 30-some percent, 32 uh, percent of high-risk offenders will commit another crime. Now, lower-level offenders, that that's down to 2, 3, even some studies have said less than 1 percent will commit a crime. Now, you say in your stories that uh, Pennsylvania uh, is one of those states that uh, does look at uh, offenders sure. and try to determine whether they are a high-risk offender and or whether they're sexually uh, a sexual predator. Sure. There are, percentage-wise, fewer, much fewer uh, sexual predators on the Megan's Law Registry yes. than there are uh, that are not considered sexual predators. There's a lot there. Can I explain? What, what, what you uh, what you found about that? Uh, by law, Pennsylvania, if you are convicted of a, a tier one, two, or three, so Pennsylvania classifies your offense by by different tiers. A tier one is more like your child luring, uh, those sorts of things. Tier two might might include uh, some contact with children, different different crimes, mid level offenses. Uh, tier three would be your highest level offenses, rape, incest, those sorts of crimes, and that judges how much. You have to be on the registry for how long, how often you have to register. And what they do, if you are convicted of any of those, the state then does an examination and determines if you are considered a sexually violent predator. And regardless of what tier you're on, if you're considered a sexually violent predator, you're put on the the registry for life. So a tier one, you'd be on for 15 years. Uh, If you are tier one and considered a sexually violent predator, you're on for life. There are about 19,000 people on the Pennsylvania Megan's Law Registry. There are about 1,500 who are considered uh, sexually violent predators. About 1,000 of them are listed as currently incarcerated. How did this story come to be? Uh, It started uh, kind of twofold. It started because we had a a gentleman, a a man who committed a sexual offense in uh, Upper Allen Township. Uh, Police were looking for him. We ran a story on that. They found him. Uh, He had had sexually assaulted uh, a young girl. When we looked into his background, we found that he was on the Delaware registry, but not on the Pennsylvania registry. So it started with that, trying to figure out why, because he was listed as living in Upper Allen Township on the Delaware registry. Yeah, and just to interrupt for a moment, and I wonder if this is across state lines, but part of the requirements is that if uh, an ex-offender moves to another location, that uh, their current address, they have to register with the county, with the local municipality, with uh, okay, the local municipality. Do they have to register with the local police? It's state police that they have to go through. Uh, The local municipalities might have some uh, residency restrictions, that kind of stuff. But, but anyway, the the bottom line is is that they have to let authorities yes. know that they have moved. Does that is is that the case from state to state? Uh, it's supposed to be. Uh, if you are a registered sex offender in one state, you have to register when you get when you move to another state. Uh, that, that's my general understanding of it. Uh, you have a certain amount of time if you do not register. Uh, Pennsylvania, it's within three days uh, of changing your address, changing your employment, changing if you get a new vehicle. Uh, if you do not register within three days th- that information with state police, uh, you're looking at felony charges. So this guy was on the registry in Delaware, in Delaware. but did not register in Pennsylvania? He, he was registered in Pennsylvania. What, what happened was the offense that he committed in Delaware happened whenever he was 13 years old. And a 2014 Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling uh, removed some uh, juvenile offenders from the Pennsylvania registry uh, as being unconstitutional. And and part of that basis was that juvenile offenders are uh, 2 to 7 percent 
uh, juvenile offenders go on to commit more uh, sexual offenses. So the the concept that they would be highly likely. Uh, this guy obviously is, I, in that probably in that two to I can't obviously can't say is, but he. He reoffended. He reoffended. That's how that I got, interrupted he, you when you were uh, sure. to explaining how the stories came to be. Go ahead. And, he, he got he got arrested for another offense. So he he likely is in that that two to seven percent that that do commit new offenses. Uh, but his name was removed. His name was or should have been on the registry whenever he was committing these offenses. So even being on the registry at that time did not stop him from uh, committing the offenses. Uh, the second part that, that came about is actually how we came on to the concept of lower recidivism rate was uh, I'd done a package of stories uh, the month prior on homelessness and incarceration, just kind of what happens to homeless people whenever they get arrested and taken to jail. Uh, And I spoke with a group called Friends Over Fences, and they work a lot with trying to help ex-offenders and uh, in large part uh, ex-sexual offenders try to get housing and reacclimate back into society. And they're the ones that made it. So that kind of piqued my interest in, in looking into you know, is that true? And 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 we kind of moved on from there. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing the effectiveness of sexual offender registries. Our guest is Carlisle Sentinel reporter Joshua Vaughn, who has written several stories on sexual offender registries. And you can read those stories. We have uh, a link to, there's a series of seven. We have a link on our website, WITF.org. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send us an email to, uh, send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is one 800 729 Let's get to some of the basics, Josh. Sure. What was Megan's Law designed to do? I, well, Megan's Law and the laws like that came before it and after it, uh, the SORNA, the, the Sexual Offender Registry and Notification Act, uh, more commonly known as the Adam Walsh Act, uh, what they do is, is, is meant to give community more notification, more understanding so they can better protect themselves. At least that seems to be what, uh, when you read the laws or read the finding of facts in the laws, uh, that seems to be what it is. So if you know there's a sexual offender living in your neighborhood, you can make adequate precautions for that person being in your neighborhood. I mean, that, they're some of the more mild laws as far as sexual offenders are concerned. I, I mean, they're, they're an Alabama Congress, uh, Alabama state representative just uh, introduced a bill that would uh, force castration. Uh, there's a uh, law that now went into effect that uh, passports for sexual offenders have to be stamped as sexual offender, uh, that they are a sexual offender on their passport. Uh, it, it's basically to, to give the community more notification so they can make precautions uh, for that person being in the community and to stop that person from committing more offenses. And they, they are, they're built on the assumption that... Uh, if a, sex of, a sexual offender is released into the community, they're going to commit more offenses. And I just mentioned that you can read the stories on WITF.org. You mm-hmm. also can go to uh, the Megan's Law Registry for Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania State Police website on our website, WITF.org, as well. All right. So, as you just said, that uh, these laws were built on the premise that uh, sexual offenders are more likely to offend again. And as sure. you stated earlier and wrote in the stories, that uh, those percentages are really low. Well, then where does this evidence come from that people believe that uh, offenders are more likely to sure. offend again? I, 
Well, one of the big pieces of evidence, or what what seems to be one of the big pieces of evidence, is a 1986 Psychology Today article that was written by uh, Robert Longo. I, he, at the time, was running an Oregon State Hospital sex offender treatment program. And the article talks about how they're having this program and they're having great success with this program. And they very well may have. In the, in the article, he makes the comment that sexual offenders can... Uh, Untreated sexual offenders are likely to, at up to 80%, likely to commit more offenses. Untreated. Now, untreated. Now, in the, to, to be fair, in, in the same article, it says 35 to 80%. So there's there's a 45% yeah, that's big. skew uh, area for him, whenever he has in the article. That article was then, in turn, cited by the uh, Department of Justice in a 1988 Field Practitioner's Manual for Treating uh, Incarcerated sexual offenders. That was in turn used uh, as evidence at a Supreme Court case that uh, compelled treatment of sexual offenders and was cited by Justice Kennedy in two Supreme Court cases uh, saying that the uh, recidivism rate for sexual offenders is frightening and high. Um, Since then, I was able to speak with with Robert Longo, and, and he has basically said that he doesn't like the fact that the his article was used in that manner, that that's not what it was meant. This is a man who spent uh, the last 40 years of his life working on treatment for sexual offenders. And uh, again, Psychology Today, it, it, it's it's a good magazine. It's it's not a scientific journal. There there are no citations, as you would expect from a site. You would not expect citations for where this information came from. It is him saying it, and it was taken as that, and it was put into the Department of Justice. The uh, author, the editor of the Department of Justice Field Manual has actually also come out against... Uh, sex offender registries as being ineffective and actually counterintuitive uh, to curbing recidivism. So, I, I, you know, I, there probably are a lot of people out there right now are asking this question, saying, you mean one article kind of prompted all of these things that have occurred all over the years, Supreme Court cases, legislatures, mm-hmm. Department of Justice, one article. Uh, one article is cited. I, from talking to Robert Longo, I mean, it seems like that was the general consensus then, and that was in 1986. And obviously we've done leaps and bounds in psychology, brain science, all that kind of stuff is since 1986. But yeah, it, it was psychology today to the Department of Justice field manual to the Supreme Court and and that's kind of how it went. But your investigation also found that even here in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. that when the law, which passed unanimously, I mm-hmm. might add, uh, was enacted, that there really wasn't a whole lot of evidence put up for it. It just was kind of one of those generally accepted that this is what happens sure. to keep people from reoffending, sure. keeping kids safe. Sure. I mean, in the 2011 update, which uh, brought Pennsylvania in compliance with the Adam Walsh Act, which they were facing a 10% cut in some of their criminal justice grants. That's how the the federal government compelled states to come in compliance. Uh, 10% cut in their grants. The the state added a a section called their legislative finding of facts. And in that, there there was a finding of fact that we need this law because sexual offenders are highly highly likely to recidivate. I I spoke with people from the state uh, and couldn't... uh, Three weeks, I got no information as far as what was used. I spoke with the, the Senate library, and they said that there were no committee hearings on the bill at all. So it was put in there. If there was evidence, 
I have not been shown it or requesting it. I have not been shown it. And the same is for the, the, the federal government. Right. Or, that was my next question is you found the same thing mm-hmm. happen in Congress. Mm-hmm. I, I reached out to Congressman Sensenbrenner's office. I uh, spoke with their their press people, told him what uh, what I was working on. Uh, he on his site, he's he is the the congressman who sponsored the Adam Walsh Act. Uh, spoke to them. He has a, a comment on his website saying that we need these laws and that the congressman is is working to protect the society from sexual offenders and this law is needed because they're highly likely to recidivate. Asked. Just simply, what evidence was used to support that? What evidence are you using to support that statement? I called them on a Thursday. The story did not run until Saturday. I gave them till the Friday after, and silence. Got nothing returned. So maybe there is. There very well may be evidence that they are using. They have not provided it. I and when asked about it, they, I've gotten no answer. Hmm. Let's go to the phone. We have a caller who doesn't want to use his name, and uh, you'll probably find out why. You're on the air. Um, how you doing? I'm doing well. I wanted to first thank you guys for uh, bringing up this uh, delicate topic. Uh, I, I myself am a registered sex offender. I am not a sexually violent predator. However, I do have to register for life. Um, it's it's a very tough topic. Uh, you know, you mentioned sex offender and people want to run away. Um, I've I've had to deal with that for a long time. I think that educating the people is probably one of the, the best things that, that we need to do. Uh, there, there's people are so ignorant to what's, what's involved with that. The recidivism rate is very low. They don't want to hear that. Um, they don't want to hear that if you're a sex offender, it may not have anything to do with a child. It may be an adult. Uh, it may be something you did with your boyfriend or girlfriend in a car and you were seen in public that would put you as a registered sex offender. Um, but people are just so quick to judge and and have uh, hatred and bitterness instead of understanding, compassion, forgiveness, um, or at least willing to, to be open-minded. Well, can I ask you uh, what crime you were convicted of? I, I was... I, Without going into detail, my when I was younger, um, I was I was involved in a situation where it was a female minor. Uh, now that was uh, more than a decade ago. Um, I'm not any under any kind of supervision or anything like that now. Um, but I do believe that people have the ability to to change and. Uh, not repeat old behaviors. Uh, people change all the time, every day in their life. So, Can I ask you this? And you said without getting into too many details, I understand. Uh, but, you know, and there's a reason I'm asking these questions. Uh, how old was this minor, and was it a female? It was a female, and she was five years old. So, you, you know, you do you realize what you did was wrong? Yes. Okay, were you treated? Uh, I was. Were you attracted to children? I I would not say that I was attracted to children, no. Um, there was an attraction there, um, but it wasn't it wasn't anything to do with that particular child. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was a psychological attraction, uh, a warped thinking if you would. So let's say that the year you know, let's say that 
somebody is attracted to an underage particular girl that they might see, well, it doesn't mean they're attracted to children. Uh, or, or, you know, if they're attracted to girls, it doesn't mean they're attracted to boys, too. Right. So well, well, um, the, the attraction there uh, for, for me, like I said, was uh, m- multiple things in, in my life growing up that kind of came together. Uh, so it was, it was about fulfilling a curiosity, um, being, being under the influence was not an excuse, but it did help me make a, a poor choice that I wouldn't have made sober. Well, let me just say that, and I'm, I'm sure that at, just as you said uh, when you, you first called in, that uh, someone hears that uh, you've committed that, uh, that crime, uh, that they don't have a whole lot of sympathy. Right. Uh, you realize when they do hear that uh, the circumstances of the crime that you committed, they probably still don't have a whole lot of sympathy. Absolutely, absolutely. But but they, the the, the general population, they they want to think that because I did that, doesn't matter how long ago, uh, that I'm probably going to do it again. Am I capable? Sure, I'm capable. Anyone's capable of doing something a second time if they've already done it once. Uh, is it likely? No. Are you attracted to children today? No. And what kind of? And you, you said that you did get uh, treatment in in prison. Uh, was and you, they kind of went into your psychological background, and and that's kind of what explained it. Correct. Mm. I'm glad you called in because uh, I think that it does provide a voice to uh, what we're talking about. But uh, I, I did want to say one other quick Okay, go ahead. Tip. Um, you know, I, I do have to register, and I do have to make changes with, within three business days um, to anything I do. Now, uh, and I totally understand that, and, and you know, um, I don't have a problem. I, I, I made the choices that led me to do that. But I will say I think that um, <laughs> some of the things are very redundant. Um, for example, if I change, uh, you know, if I buy and sell cars, I have to go in there every week. You know, it's, um, I, I think there could be a, a maybe a less uh, time-consuming method that would be more beneficial for the authorities. They wouldn't have to take up so much time to, to kind of babysit. Uh, for certain things. Mm. And that's one of the things that uh, Josh wrote about. Again, thank you very much for calling in and uh, uh, explaining uh, what went on and telling your story. Thanks thanks a lot. Josh, that's a powerful uh, a powerful Absolutely. story. I mean, now one thing I will say, though, is that, and one of the things I'm sure that you ran into uh, is that people like our caller right there are not going to get a lot of sympathy. No. And... and, and the the few people that I spoke with they they understand that they understand they're not getting a whole lot of sympathy and I, and I don't think the the question is does society not find these crimes heinous does do they, we not want to stop them do we not want to do everything that we can to stop these crimes from happening but we we are spending a lot of money on this I actually was able to find some numbers last night in prep for this show that well, I was not no, able to get I'm glad into you the prepped <laughs> <laughs> uh, before before. Uh, that did not run in the story. Uh, there was uh, the uh, Justice Policy Institute did a study on uh, updating states updating SORNA and found that Pennsylvania 
for implementation, it was going to cost Pennsylvania $20 million to implement the, the updates to the coming compliance with SORNA, uh, the Adam Walsh Act, uh, and they would lose 10% of their grants if they did not come in compliance. In 2006, that would have been, uh, they got $7.64 million uh, in grants, so 10%, $764,000. So the, the study found that Pennsylvania was expected to spend $20 million to save $764,000 in grant money. So uh, that's about a $19 million. And that was kind of the gist of your story. One yeah. of the motivating factors is that the amount of money that is spent uh, whether it actually the law is actually doing sure. what it's intended to do. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I and and again speaking with with uh, Kristen Hauser and speaking with other other groups, even even uh, Women Against Registry, which is which is a group of uh, family members of people in the sex offender registry. Their their point is not that these people should not be incarcerated. We shouldn't stop these crimes. But is this the best allocation of, of resources? Could we be doing more to prevent these crimes? Uh, before they ever happen, rather than adding these measures after the crimes happen, thinking with the assumption that that these are the people that we need to be most worried about, because it's typically not the stranger that commits these crimes. That's a big point. Uh, talk about that, if you would. I, according to Trooper Adam Reed, a spokesman for the Pennsylvania State Police, uh, about eighty percent of uh, children or any any victim of sexual uh, assault is knows their uh, assailant before it happens. So, I mean, we're, we're talking a, a vast majority of the people are known, uh, and it seems like uh, a lot of child, uh, child sex offenders, there's a there's a buildup. There, there's the grooming habits. There's all those things that happen before the offense actually happens. It's not saying that, the, that it does not happen, that the person drives up in the van and grabs a kid and does all right. that. And right. that's terrifying. I, as, as a dad, that's terrifying. That, oh, that's that, like one of the biggest fears of, of, of anyone, sure. but a parent in particular. It, it's, it's, it's a terrifying thought that, that could happen, but it's, it's an extremely rare situation. We, we do want to stop those from happening, but are we spending the money in the places that are actually preventing, having the most impact on preventing those kind of crimes? Let's take some phone calls here. Eric is from Harrisburg. Eric, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Uh, good morning. Um, the, the previous caller actually touched on what I wanted to ask, uh, because we have uh, a correctional system, and the theory goes way back to William Penn, of course, uh, where the idea is to rehabilitate offenders. And it's, it's predicated on that assumption that, that you can rehabilitate individuals. And so I was just wondering if, if your guest... Uh, looked into the issue of what kind of rehabilitation goes on with sex offenders. Uh, you know, uh, so clearly the previous caller talked about that he had received treatment. And, of course, when we release them, the theory is that when you release somebody out of the correctional system, they are, in theory, rehabilitated. Uh, so that's my question, basically. Okay. Thank you very much for your call. Sure. I got a little bit into this. I spoke with a, a, a professor from the University of Massachusetts who this is what he's studied, uh, sex offender policies uh, and, and their effectiveness and what are some effective treatments. And, and what he basically said was uh, cognitive behavioral therapy seems to be one of the ways that that truly helps. And when you do get these get sex offenders into these kind of treatments and, and effective treatments, that, that, that they do work. Uh, they do work to reduce the recidivism rate uh, for them. 
All right, let's take another call, and uh, this is actually uh, someone else who uh, must register. Uh, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I want to touch on a couple of things, but one of them is uh, the Megan's Law Registry itself. Uh, when I was charged and, uh, and convicted of possession of child pornography, I was. Uh, this is before the Adam Walsh Act happened, mm. so I was uh, sentenced to probation, and I had to, and I have to, would have had to have registered on the uh, registry for ten years. The reason that I was told by my lawyers that the uh, that uh, after the Adam Adam Walsh, I now have to register for fifteen years. I was told that the reason why it wasn't a uh, postdated punishment is that the registry is not considered to be a punishment, so they can do whatever they want with it. But I want to talk about the collateral damage that happens because of that. Um, First of all, I had a professional job that I lost. I couldn't keep my job without being able to pass a criminal background check. So I lost that job. had to go into really rather menial labor that is far below my education. And uh, given opportunities since then, to leave that job and to go back into professional work, I've been in, unable to because of the registry. Secondly, whenever one of my neighbors found out I was living in an apartment situation, when one of my neighbors found in the apartment complex found out that I was on the registry, I was then uh, he knocked on my door, uh, assaulted and raped me afterwards at home after my probation, after everything was done. He did it at gunpoint, and the whole time I heard, oh, you know, you had this coming, and because you're bad to children. Now, uh, the and, of course, I reported, I, when I went to the police to report this, they, I was not taken seriously. They didn't even take my name. There's no record whatsoever of me going into the police station and saying, this happened to me, and I, you know, I need help because... I was seen as less than the next person or the previous per- person that would walk in to give the same exact complaint about a neighbor. So there is collateral damage. It is a punishment. You're ridiculed. You lose your income. You lose. I mean, my education is worthless, and it, and I'm still paying for it. Now, I ended up on the registry because I was sexually abused as a child, and my father actually made me perform in child pornography. A fact which was lost to me whenever I was for a, many, many, many years. And in the 2000s, I, through therapy, working out some problems at home, I discovered this. I remembered that this had happened to me and immediately lost the ability to sleep knowing that child pornography exists and knowing that it's out there on the Internet somewhere. I was actually hunting for my own porn whenever I was arrested. Now, I take full responsibility for that. And to touch on what Eric said, there is court mandated therapy that comes along with it, but there's two things that they don't that, that nobody knows about that. You're on probation at the time and you must absolutely must sign a waiver that says that your probation officer may ask and inquire and get any details whatsoever that are disclosed during your session. You have to sign a release giving you giving law enforcement access to, to recordings of your sessions. So is it 
actual therapy if you can't actually talk about what's going on for fear of what your probation officer will say about it, who is not a trained psychological professional. Hey, and, I, I, hate yeah, to, I hate to interrupt you, but um, I'm going to have to move on. But uh, yeah, go ahead. You, you have a, a very powerful story to tell, and uh, I'm, I'm glad you called in. Thank you very much. I, I mean that's sure. just my sure. God, that's that's unbelievable. Yeah, and, and it, 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 he's he's right. He's absolutely right. The, the laws specifically say that they are non-punitive, and the the the, the Supreme Court in the case in two thousand two that cited the psychology today, or the the DOJ manual that that cited the the psychology today, the, the ex post facto. Well, sorry, that was a 2003 case coming out of Alaska. Uh, the ex post facto was found because it's non-punitive uh, under the law. It, it's considered non-punitive. Uh, in that case, it was two guys who had been out of jail for 10 years, had not been, had not con- uh, committed any more offenses since. Uh, the one guy had been uh, given his children after psychological evaluation, had custody of his children, saying that he wasn't a pedophile, wasn't going to commit any more offenses. And he then still had to register because the frightening and high recidivism rate was a compelling state interest that overwhelmed the, the, the interest of privacy for the, the person on the registry. I'm not asking you to for your opinion, sure. but uh, bottom line, uh, from doing this story, uh, the people that you talk to, mm-hmm. it seems to say it seems that from what I've read in your stories that they're saying this doesn't work. Yeah, and again, it comes down to what we mean by work. If if we mean by they make it harder for sex offenders to be out in society, then yes, it, it works. That as far as it seems like the 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 research shows that if it you're talking stopping more offenses, no, they they don't seem to be working. Carlisle Sentinel reporter Josh Vaughn, he's written several stories on uh, sexual offender registries, and uh, we have a link. You can go to uh, cumberlink.com, your website, but uh, also uh, witf.org. We have a link to the stories. Josh, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. During the month of March, there have been at least eight terrorist attacks around the world that killed more than 220 people. Three have been in Pakistan, including the 37 killed by a suicide bomber Easter Sunday. But there have been others in Nigeria, Ivory Coast, Yemen, and Turkey, and of course in Brussels in Belgium, where the number of dead is now over 31 people. It all seems too much to comprehend and makes one think if terrorism can ever be stopped. Our guest today is one of the nation's foremost experts on terrorism. He is Dr. Michael Kenney, an associate professor of international National Affairs and Program Director of International Affairs at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Kenny is a former faculty member at Penn State Harrisburg. Michael Kenny, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, and a quick shout out to all my friends and colleagues in Harrisburg. I hope they're tuning in. <laughs> if you have a we we have a question if you have a question or comment give us a call 1-800-729-7532 send an email to smarttalk at org. Dr. Kenny I have to say that uh, when I 
look back through the month of March just uh, on media sites, uh, I have to admit that uh, I was a little bit surprised at the number of terrorist attacks around the world. Of course, Brussels has gotten most of the attention. The Easter Sunday attack in Pakistan got a lot of media attention. But some of those others, like Yemen, Ivory Coast, Nigeria, don't get to, to, as much attention. But what's going on? Is this an unusual number of cases here in the last month? Um, not necessarily. Um most terrorism in the world is concentrated in five countries, Nigeria, Syria, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Um, these also happen to be areas where, as you just pointed out, Scott, we've seen some recent attacks in March and earlier. In Nigeria, you have Boko Haram, a vicious insurgency that is engaged in a bloody struggle uh, against the government in Nigeria, is attacking civilians as brutally and as often as it can. Uh, in Pakistan, you have groups uh, that are affiliated with the remnants of the Taliban. They continue to attack. In Yemen, you've got offshoots of al-Qaeda uh, engaged in attacks. And then we know the situation with ISIS in Iraq and Syria. So these are um, some of the most active theaters in, trend in terrorism today. Why is it? It almost seems as though media attention uh, at least influences us here in America and in the West as to, oh, something's got to be done about this. Uh, the Paris attacks in uh, in November, uh, yeah. Charlie Hebdo last year in the early part of the year, now Brussels in Europe, that attacks in Europe get more attention here in the United States than the ones in Nigeria, Africa and Asia. And that is a source of, um, you know, dare I say, anger sometimes to people living in those other parts of the world. They feel that the West values Western lives more highly. The fact of the matter is, in any given year, um, there's a number of devastating attacks throughout, throughout the world. Uh, internationally, the number of attacks and the number of fatalities has increased in recent years. Um, although part of that might be a data artifact due to better counting. But as best we can figure, the number of attacks is on the rise. And yes, the number of attacks is on the rise in Europe. That is a development that's related to ISIS's own efforts to create this transnational terrorism unit, which has focused its efforts on Europe. So Europe right now is under great stress and I think, unfortunately, as, as much as I hate to say this, um, we might not have seen the last of this in Europe. And it, it sounds that way. I mean, from what's been described in Brussels, in Belgium in particular, that uh, their counterterrorism, their security has been in disarray for a long time now. And uh, that that's one of the reasons they think that uh, Belgium has been a target and has been a place where some of these terrorists have uh, ha terrorist groups have, have formed and have met and carried out. But the big question, Dr. Kenny, a lot of people ask. And, I mean, this is the biggest question. If you can answer it, maybe we wouldn't have a problem. But it's why? Why are we seeing an increase? Well, one reason that we're seeing an increase is due to the ISIS phenomenon, okay? Um, but you also have groups like Boko Haram in Nigeria that have, uh, have 
engaged in an incredible number of attacks in recent years. You also have a resurgent um, Taliban and a resurgent al-Qaeda. Uh, not al-Qaeda like we originally thought of it. Okay, it's kind of um, the next generation, more decentralized, more amorphous. So you have a number of these groups that are that are carrying out attacks. And so that overall contributes to the greater number of attacks internationally. Um, with respect to Europe itself, a lot of the recent attacks, as, as you, you and your listeners well know, are more related to ISIS. And ISIS has made a decision that since they're losing ground in Iraq and Syria, they decided, you know what, we're going to take the fight to the Europeans, we're going to strike where we can, targets of opportunity, soft targets, and that's exactly what they've been doing. And it's interesting um, and I think important for us to remember that ISIS created this, this kind of transnational unit focused on Europe two years ago. And only now is that unit um, sort of bearing fruit in, um, in a kind of a gruesome way of putting it. Uh, they've been trying to do this for years. The Europeans have disrupted a number of plots over the years. But unfortunately, the terrorists, um, you know, they don't have to be successful every time. They only have to get through a few times to cause all sorts of damage. We have an email here from a listener, Manuel, who says, can your guest speak to the fact, and these are his words, that there is no true security on an illusion of security designed to soothe the public? A determined attacker or shooter with minimal backing and planning can create a terrorist incident without engaging the security in place in public places. Knowing you are in, in potentially in constant danger can keep people from the complacency that we in the West live with. I don't know if you agree with that, but what do you think? Well, um, from the part of the question that I, that I could follow, uh, I would agree that, that carrying out terrorist attacks um, on, a, on a low scale, like these small-scale terrorist attacks, is incredibly cheap. You know, all you need is access to, to a weapon or two. If you can build explosives, great, but many people can't. You don't necessarily need explosives. I mean, it depends where you are. You know, in the U.S., obviously, if you're going to engage in this sort of thing, one thing that you're a key weapon that you're going to look at is guns, you know, some sort of firearm, um, because it's frankly easier for you to get that than it might be to build an improvised explosive device. Although, if you have the training, that's not necessarily impossible. Um, terrorists want to strike, but um, oftentimes their, their capabilities are limited. When we talk about counterterrorism efforts, I think it's fair to say that the Belgians are really struggling right now. But this also is related to the setup of that country and to the structure, the incredibly um, it, it, it's a very federalist system. You have different uh, language groups in the country that sometimes make it hard for the authorities to cooperate and to communicate effectively. So there's a lot more going on in Belgium um, than we can cover in this brief uh, conversation. Mm -hmm. Speaking of guns, we have a listener who has a question about guns. Steve is in Conestoga. Steve, you're on the air. Hi, guys. Um, yeah, there seems to be a great void of information on the commercial media about these attacks. And I can't think of one suicide bomber that has occurred in America. So I'm wondering, are the people over there armed as we are? 
uh, where these attacks are happening. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Are they? Could you could you repeat the yeah, question? Yeah, you, you said that we don't have uh, quite as many attacks here in the United States where there are more guns available uh, as they do in Europe where there aren't as many guns on the streets as we have here in the United States. Is that a factor? Um, I think the reason that the U.S. hasn't seen as many of these sorts of incidents th- than Europe has has to do a lot more than guns is, is not the driving factor there, okay? You've got to look at integration. How well are these populations being integrated in society? You've got to look at the number of young men and women that are being disenfranchised in society. So, so guns, you know, access to weaponry is only one factor, right? There's a lot more going on in Europe. Europe faces tremendous challenges right now with integrating, you know, unfortunately, um, sizable chunks of its population. It has not done a good job of integrating people into its society. People feel disenfranchised. In some countries, they feel like they're kind of shuffled off into these... um, I don't want to use the word ghetto, but but these communities don't necessarily are not as well integrated into society as other communities might be. So I don't necessarily disagree with the caller. I'm just trying to suggest that there's a lot more going on than just access to weapons. For example, in Europe, Europe also deals with the blowback or is what's sometimes called the bleedback problem, the, the number of foreign fighters from Iraq and Syria to Europe is much higher than what we have here. So, so there's a lot going on there that, that needs to be um, addressed. One of the reasons that, uh, one of the things I thought of with hearing Steve's question, though, is uh, there are a lot of issues that go into this, uh, issues that we deal with here in the United States. Uh, what many people who uh, want immigration reform or really want to limit uh, immigration into the United States are saying is they point to Europe and say, we don't want to become Europe. We don't want to have the problems that that Europe has. And Steve also brought up the gun issue. So there are several issues that intertwine there. But I mean, I know that there are people in Europe as well who have said, we do not want the immigrants here. Yeah, unfortunately, that is um, a takeaway that that some people, um, you know, make when they hear these sorts of discussions. My answer to that would be that we are not Europe precisely because we have done a better job of integrating recent immigrants into the United States, you know, of finding people jobs, of integrating in them in our societies. We're creating, you know, people have a reason to want to live here and want to stay and to want to be productive members of American society. We have to build on our strengths rather than give in to our fears. And, and by doing so, we could unintentionally create a situation where we help end up we make ourselves more like Europe, right? We don't want to turn against Muslim Americans, for example, because that would help create the situation that they have in Europe. You know, so we we have to be very careful of unintentionally um, feeding into the ISIS narrative and making their job easier. 
You've done a lot of research, Dr. Kenny, and have written a lot about uh, different uh, terrorist groups. Um, is ISIS unique? ISIS, no, no. I mean, ISIS is not unique. ISIS is part of the so-called fourth wave of terrorism. This began actually in the late 70s. Um, it's, it, ISIS is just kind of the latest version of al-Qaeda. I mean, what makes ISIS somewhat unique is the, the fact that in June of 2014, it established what they called the caliphate, you know, their so-called Islamic State. This is their calling card. This is what makes them unique. But they're losing there. ISIS has lost 40% of its territory um, in, in Iraq. It's been losing ground in Syria. And, and I believe that one reason why we're seeing an increase in ISIS-related attacks in Europe is because the group is reacting to the loss of its territory in Iraq and Syria. And that will continue. You know, as the coalition continues to come together and takes the fight to eventually to Mosul, you know, how is ISIS going to react to that? Is ISIS going to sit back and say, oh, all right, yeah, we're done? Or is its transnational terror unit going to try to ramp up operations? We, you know, we don't need to be terrorized about this, but it's something for us to be aware of and something for us to, to think about. But, you know, our, our law enforcement agencies in the U.S. are doing a great job of disrupting a number of plots, and I would expect that to continue. One reason I asked the question about Unique, yes, I was thinking about uh, how ISIS actually has some land, but also how brutal they are uh, yeah. and, you know, willing to use social media and to publicize their brutality out there. Uh, that's something that we haven't seen, at least video-wise, and maybe that's what makes it unique, is that we're actually able to see the brutality. Well, I mean, let's let's not forget in 2004 when American uh, Nicholas Berg was gruesomely beheaded on video by who? By Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, you know, one of the... Well, but on the other hand, you could say, well, that, that actually proves your point, Scott, because uh, Musab al-Zarqawi was one of these guys that, that created al-Qaeda in Iraq, which later evolved into ISIS. So... There is something to be said for, for ISIS has been very adept at, at using social media and um, really creating these brutal spectacles. Um, but th that phenomenon itself goes back at least 12 years or mm. so. Uh, Dr. Kenny, we only have about a minute or so left. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. I, I guess the big question is, what can be done to stop it or at least reduce it? I think one thing we have to remember is we're never going to completely wipe out terrorism in the world. Terrorism has been with us since the thugs and the ancient Sicarii's and the ancient assassins. Terrorism goes back literally thousands of years. What we can do is to continue to do what we're doing in the United States, building resilient communities, reaching out to our partners in Muslim communities, not, not to spy on people, but to, you know, you are partners with us in American society. Let's continue to build the America that we want to build. 
Dr. Michael Kenny is Associate Professor of International Affairs and Program Director of International Affairs at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Kenny is a former faculty member at Penn State Harrisburg. Dr. Michael Kenny, thank you very much for joining us today, and uh, we could be in touch in the future because it doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon. Dr. Kenny, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Scott.